Good morning, City Light Church. Uh, good morning. There we go. Uh, I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. And if uh, you're just joining us, I want to say welcome. Thanks for joining us uh, in this gathering. Uh, but uh, I wanted to kind of fill you in. We've been walking through the story of a man named David. Uh, he's God's anointed king over his people Israel. And so as we, we've been seeing his story unfold, we've been seeing a, a drama. Like it, it, there's a, it's a crazy journey that this guy's been on. And, and I think that it's probably a story that's fit for the movies, even though no one's copyrighted that or written that down yet. Uh, but today uh, isn't actually a continuation of this story or of this narrative. It's actually a, a climactic dialogue in this book uh, where we get to see a, a dialogue that has eternal implications for us uh, and for the people in it. Uh, and so this passage is said to be either one of the most or the most important passage in all the Old Testament. And so as we dive into that, I, I'd like to invite you to follow along with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, in the Old Testament section of our Bibles. Um, before we get started, I, I would like to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and its implications on our life today and in eternity. Let today's message be a message from you to our hearts. Holy Spirit, I invite you, please take over, proclaim your words to your people, uh, and, and that you would elevate Jesus in us more this morning than when we walked in before. Uh, in your name we pray, amen. So, so one of the things that you don't expect when you come to a gathering uh, of the church is, is that you would hear that a pastor says he struggles. Uh, the, the problem with that is that we do. We struggle a lot. Actually, we, we bleed red just like everybody else, and, and I struggle. And, and one of the main things that I've struggled with in my Christian walk is the question of enough. How much is enough of my life, of my finances, my time, my talent to give to the Lord? How much of what I have is enough in response to God's grace. So I'm not saying that how much is enough to gain God's love and affection, but how much is, a, is enough response to the beautiful grace that's been lavished upon me. And so let me give you some examples of what are some possibilities of what, what I could be thinking through. One is uh, every single day all over the world, there are women being taken from their homes and trafficked for other people's pleasure. Uh, they, they've been sold into slavery and for 50 bucks... I could contribute to one of them being set free and starting their own small business. 50 bucks changes her whole life. Or I, the, for the cost of a caramel macchiato at Starbucks, I could feed, in some parts of the world, a child for an entire month. So six bucks changes her whole life. Or if, if my wife and I would decide to take cool showers rather than hot showers, we could actually take the finances from that and help fund uh, education, uh, food, and the proclamation of the gospel for a little girl in Haiti. Like, those are the possibilities. And so if those things are true, if there's so many gospel works, so many issues in the world, how could I in good conscience not give all of my finances away and not keep anything else for my own enjoyment? Should, should I cancel my internet so that I can provide for that woman and free her from human trafficking? Should I stop buying my wife the Starbucks during the week so that we can feed an orphan in another part of the world? Should we start taking cold showers so that we might educate, feed, and preach the gospel to a girl in Haiti? Well, the answer to that is maybe. Maybe I should. I mean, but how much is enough? Why not give all of it to them? Why not do all of those things? Is it possible to specifically know how much is enough to give to God? Can we know for sure how much sacrifice, how much doing good is enough? 
Now, I know a lot of us in the room are, are asking the same question. We know that we're saved by grace, but how much is enough response to that grace that we've been given? And this is the question that David, I, I believe, is walking in in the first three verses of our passage. Let's read it. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So, so what's going on here is David is now established as king. Everything's going well for the people of Israel. Their enemies are defeated. God has provided him a home from somebody in Tyr. Like David has a beautiful home, and he's resting up, sipping his Mai Tai, and he looks across the way and sees that the, the ark of God is under a tent. Now, now, to understand the significance of the, of the ark, the ark for Israel was symbolic of God's presence before them. And so that, that's why it was so important that when the ark was brought up in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, it was to mark the occasion that everything was as it should be. God's presence was with his people. Their enemies were defeated. David was the rightful king as God would anoint him. However, David wasn't satisfied with that. He saw that he was living it up large, and yet the presence of God was underneath a tent, a tarp. So what does he do? He, he does what any good Christian would do. He, he asked his pastor, pastor Nathan, the prophet, if he could fund a temple being built for the ark of God. And, and like a good pastor, Nathan responds, absolutely. Now, I promise you, you come to a pastor and you ask them if you can take money of your own and, and fund some sort of eternal or kingdom-minded endeavor, he's not going to say, nah, we good, we don't need that. that that's just not going to happen. And so Nathan's like, yeah, that's a good and God-honoring thing. Go for it. And, and I think that's how we should respond, too. Like, we should see that, like, yeah, God wants us to give things to his kingdom toward his eternal purposes. We've been given so much, so how much should we give, though? What's the amount of sacrifice that would be enough? There's another book in the Bible called First and Second Chronicles, which kind of parallels First and Second Samuel and sharing of David's story. And in that book, don't mistake this, David is not actually pressing into some sort of sinful nature trying to provide for God here. Uh, actually, this, uh, Second Chronicles 6, 8 actually says that it was a good heart. It was a good God-honoring thing. But what God is going to do in our text is he wants to take that good and God-honoring thing and refocus and give it a, be- a greater perspective of what it looks like to give to the Lord. And, and so we're going to, my first point this morning is who is the real giver? And so let's look at uh, God's response in verses 4 through 11. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So God starts out by saying, no. No, you can't give to God. And, and I'm looking at Nathan and being in his shoes as David's pastor thinking, I think I need a second opinion. You, you mean to tell me you want me to go to him and say, no, you can't give to this good kingdom cause. You know, like asking like, hey, is there anyone else I could talk to about this situation? But, but on a serious note, though, it was a surprising response for Nathan to come back to David and say, actually, God says no, at least for the time being. And there's three reasons why God said no in this place. The first one is God is the giver of his presence. He, he goes with his people. He, he outlined the history of Israel from them, their freedom from Egypt up until now. And he says, I, I'm the one that dwells with my people. I don't want something on high. I want to be in the desert with them, in captivity with them, on the mountain with them, in their, their muck and their myrrh. I want to be there with them. And so what he's saying is, I'm the one that brings the presence. And I never asked for a house to begin with. The second is God did everything for David. So he was like, need I remind you, David, that you didn't get yourself here. Uh, you just 25 years ago or so was a little shepherd boy following some sheep that nobody cared about. And I have placed you now, as I anointed you, into the place of a prince over my people. Catch this. Don't miss this. There's a significance to him calling him prince. Just last week, Pastor Ricky did a phenomenal job of sharing with us that David realized who the real king was, and that's God. And so what God is pointing out, he's like, again, I am the real king. You are a prince that I have placed there. God reminds him that, hey, the enemies that you had, I defeated them. I'm the conqueror. I'm the victor. God is the sovereign Lord. And finally, in verse 11, God is the giver of the eternal house. God says that, that, he, that David won't be building him a house or any other human for that matter, but God is going to build his own house, his own kingdom. And so it's just like this. For, for David, David's talking to God, and God's talking back to him, and God's saying, I don't think you understand that I'm the one doing all the heavy lifting. So, so let me give you an example. Misha, my two-year-old's very sweet, very cute, um, she always wants to help, always wants to help with everything that we do, especially when it comes to lifting things, which makes no sense, because usually she wants to lift something that's bigger than her or heavier than she is, right? Like she's just... She's got it. She hulks out a little bit. But anyway, so, so one day, I, I'm, I'm getting the groceries out of my really nice minivan, as Austin likes to lovingly point out, that I have a nice minivan. I don't know. Anyway, out of my nice minivan, I pull a gallon of milk out, which is in a plastic bag, and Misha runs up and says, I help. And I'm like, oh, sweetie, that's cute. Uh, this gallon weighs more than you do. But lovingly, as her father, I was like, sure. So I handed her one of the handles, and I took the other handle in my hand, and we walked it up into the house and placed it in the kitchen. Little did Misha know that she wasn't carrying any of the weight, but she was a part of the process. And in the same way, that's what God is communicating to David. That God is the one doing the work, and he's just giving him, he, he, he's taking this opportunity to tell his child, hey, I'm the one giving my presence, my purpose, my anointing, my eternal house. God does the work, and he allows David to be a part of it. What isn't mentioned in our text, in, in, in 1 Chronicles 22.5, it says that David actually did, in fact, be a part of the process of building God's temporary temple. He, he funded it, actually. He bought all the materials. However, he wasn't allowed to be a part of building the temple. That was for someone else. 
But God lovingly and graciously as a father said, yeah, you can be a part of the process. Come on, I'll do all the heavy lifting, but you can contribute. You can be a part of what I'm doing. See, see, God wants us to give generously with every aspect of our life toward eternal things, toward building his kingdom, but not out of a work to say, hey, I'm helping God out. Like, like that's, that's not what he's inviting us into. He's inviting us to be a part of what he's already doing. And, and this is as a response to that work. And, and let me show you what that's a response to. Uh, verses 12 through 17. Let's read it real quick. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So not only did God say, hey, I'm going to build the temple, but he also reveals to him, he says, hey, I'm planning to use your lineage, David, to build my kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And it's not going to be David's kingdom, but it's ultimately going to be God's kingdom. And, and this is why this passage is said to be one of the most or the most important passage in all the Old Testament. It describes the Davidic covenant. Now, some of you in the room are like, David, what? Davidic, David, covenant, which is a, a legally binding promise. So this is God's promise to David to build a kingdom through his lineage for all the nations. So, so here's why this is significant for, for David in this moment, for the people of this time, is because God's people Israel were established in, in Genesis 12 by a promise as well. There's a guy named Abraham that God came to and promised. He said, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation so that you all can bless other nations. However, since that promise, uh, there's been some things that have gone on. So, so the Israelite people have been overtaken. They've been in the desert. They've been in the wilderness. They have gone from one nation capturing them to another. They've gone from one bad leader to another bad leader. And this has been all over the span of a thousand years. They've been waiting. They've been waiting for God to do what he says he's going to do. And up until this point, God's people are looking out at their own babies, for that matter, and saying, hey, I'm hoping one of these are the Messiah, the Savior, that's going to come and redeem our people and establish this nation that God talked about. I, I, I'm looking, and so every single woman who had a baby was like, well, maybe this is going to be the one. Maybe this is going to be the one. Kind of like what I pray for my kids, that I'm like, maybe this is going to be the one that becomes a professional athlete, right? Like, save our people. But no, I'm just kidding, a little bit. Uh, we, we see this in, in 1 Samuel 8, that, that the issue for, in 1 Samuel 8 is that Israel wanted a king, but it's, that, it's not the issue that they wanted a king, because God actually promised them a king in Genesis 17. The, the issue was that they wanted a king like every other nation, and not the way that God won't want them to have a king. You see, God in this passage is narrowing the focus for them and says, it's not going to be just some random kid in Israel, it's actually going to be from the line of David. What, what a beautiful grace for God to give David an insight into what he's going to do and how he's going to use his lineage going forward. In, in verse 14, God gives him a prophecy about a son. And, and like most prophecies in the Old Testament, what you see is that there's an there's a, um, initial or a, uh, sorry, an immediate um, 
affirmation of that, and then there's a final one. So there's an immediate meaning behind it, and there's a final meaning behind the prophecy. And so the immediate one here is David did indeed have a son. His son's name was Solomon, and Solomon did take over the kingdom, and and he was established, and he did make Israel great. In fact, there were nations from all over the world that, that would come to Israel and admire the fact that their God king had established them the way they had. Solomon was the immediate king that was promised. And in verse 15, it says that God kept his promise. Even though Solomon sinned and sinned a lot, God kept his promise not to remove uh, David's lineage from the kingdom and the kingdom advancement. And then that final meaning to what, what God is saying in this promise finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Through the line of David, our eternal king was birthed forth to come and be the temple on our behalf and die on the cross for our sins so that he can be the ultimate victor who rules and reigns as our king and for God's kingdom. God's presence no longer dwelt in a tent but dwelt in his people. Jesus is the greater promised son of David. Jesus did not sin, but he actually died for sin. Solomon's temple was a temporary temple, and Jesus' temple lasts forever. The sacrifices made in Solomon's temples were done over and over and over again. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is once for all. Solomon eventually died, but Jesus died and rose from the grave and reigns forever on high. See, like, do you see that? That everything you, everything that we have has been given to us from the Lord. We can't add any value to God. We can't give him anything. He is the primary giver. He is the giver, both temporarily but also eternally. God has given us so much in the gift of his son who, who took the rod and the stripe and the cross that we deserve so that we might have his righteousness and his perfect record. God is the real giver. So, so what do we give God then? Which gets me to my second point. I'm glad you asked. Uh, what do you give the person who has everything? Let's pick it up in verse 18. Uh, maybe. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So I've been told before that I'm a guy that's kind of hard to buy things for. Okay. Uh, the reason being is because I usually have what I want. Now, it's not the way Austin goes about that. It's just a little bit different. He kind of just drops cash and it's his. Um, if you know me well enough, you know I kind of have a side hustle all the time. I got something going on where I'm making money somehow, some way. He makes fun of me for it. Uh, but, but, but that's, that's the kind, of, kind of the reality for me. And one day, Trey comes to me, my son. He's like in eighth grade, and he's like, Dad, my friends keep telling me you're rich. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean, man? You know better. <laughs> and, and he's like, I was kind of laughing at him. And I was like, okay, so why do they say that? He said, like, because you always have the latest electronics. 
And then I started laughing. I was like, oh, I get it now. Silly kids. They don't know that I sold like three things in order to get that new thing. Like I always have some sort of side hustle. If I want something, I, I might get it, but it's going to take some work involved. And so everybody has somebody like that, right? Where they, you're trying to buy a birthday gift or a Christmas gift that's perfect for that person, but you look at them and you're like, what, 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 what do I get you? And so what do you give the person that has everything? Well, simply put, worship and praise. So after Nathan tells David all of these things, our text says that David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, the language used here is is not supposed to paint a picture of him casually walking before the Lord's presence and having a seat. That's not what's going on here. In fact, David was taken back by the Lord. He was in awe of the Lord, which is why he says in verse 18, Who am I, O Lord God? This phrase is repeated over se- around seven times for the remainder of this passage. Now, let me give you a little cue. When, you, when you're reading your Bible and something's repeated over and over and over again in a short span, God's trying to draw your attention to something. And, and here's what he's trying to draw your attention to. The phrase, O Lord God, in the original language is Adonai Yahweh, which means sovereign Lord. David is acknowledging the power and the majesty of his God before him. He understands the beauty of God's grace here. He's he's saying, who am I, O God, that you would take me and my family and that you would take us thus far and then consider that to be something small in comparison to what you're about to do? Who am I, O God, that you would show me such grace? That's what's going on here. So let's pause and sit in that for a second. Look back at yourself while you sit here. Look back at yourself five years ago to now. And maybe, maybe for some of you it's 10 or 20 years ago until you got here, but look back and think about how far that you've come thus far, right here, right now. Think about it. You didn't get here on your own. God brought you to this point. God's the one that has freed you from your addiction. God is the one that brought that spouse to you, gave you those kids, gave you that job, gave you that house, gave you that scholarship, gave you that money, gave you that family, and gave you those friends. God is the one who did it. Think about it. God's still the one redeeming you. He's still the one transforming you. He's still the one sustaining you. The sovereign Lord in his grace brought you to this point. James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift is from above. He's the one that's provided a way for you to have access and relationship to him. As you sit in your seat, right now you sit in the presence of the sovereign Lord. Are you in awe? Are you taken back that he's even mindful of you? Are you taken back by the reality that every single breath that comes out of your mouth is a sign of his mercy and his grace on you? That he would say on a reoccurring loop that I, the sovereign Lord, love you so deeply that I would send my son for you. Are you in awe of that? And if not, I'm not sure that you quite understand the gravity and the weight and the beauty of his grace. That grace that he promised to David is the grace that we get to receive. God forgives our sins and puts us in right standing before him. 
And this is so much more than a ticket to heaven or, or a, 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 a get-out-of-hell-free card, if you will. If that's the way we view it, we're, we're minimalizing the impact of what we're talking about here. And we continue on. What we do is we'll continue on being paralyzed by the question of what is enough to give. We basically say with our life, this was a really nice thing that God did for us. Now I'm going to go ahead and pay him back. You see, that, that's not salvation by grace, but a really sneaky way of having salvation by the law. The humility that David is displaying here is one that's based on the grace that he's given. We get so caught up in looking in our mirror and seeing all of our, our faults and our shame and our guilt and our past and the, the sin that we commit every single day and fail before a holy God, and we look at it and say, there's no way you can use a loser like me. Now, I know and I understand that we were sinners, misfits, and losers without hope. But that's no longer who you are. Your story has changed. That story isn't, what can I do for God, but what has God done for me? God told David that he would give him a son and that that son would rule and reign forever. He did that. He sent his perfect son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. He lived a perfect life as a perfect Savior so that we can become the sons and daughters of the living God. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's awesome. That is what is worthy of awe. Let's keep going. In verse 19 through 24, he continues to worship and praise God for all that he's done. And even recognizing that it isn't just for him, but for all people. Did you catch that? That this grace, this instruction, as he put it, is for all people groups. David doesn't just keep this to himself and say the sovereign Lord is sovereign Lord over Israel. But he says, no, this is for all mankind, all people groups. And then David transitions his prayer uh, to to not just reflecting on what God has done and what he's doing in his midst, but of who he is. It's beautiful. In verses 22 through 24, he says, uh, he calls God great. And he says, there's none like you in that there are no other gods out there. David's prayer was one of acknowledging his king, acknowledging who God is and that he's unmatched by anybody else. And the beauty of all that is that David knows God. That's what's beautiful about it. That's why he's able to call out the immeasurable beauties of him is because he knows him. And then finally, he, he, he talks about, yes, what he's done, what he's doing in his midst, but then he prays in faith that God will do what he has promised. Verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. You see, David's praying forever prayers, right? 
Uh, he, he's praying God's word back to him. These are eternal prayers. These are things that, that David is strengthening his own faith, faith because he knows that God has done what he said he's going to do, and he's going to continue to do what he's promised. The two things that you can give the person that has everything is praise and your faith, your trust in him. David had faith in God's promises. He knew and remembered that God is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. Church, this is, this is why it's so important that when you open up your Bible and you read, you meet with Jesus, th- that you also pray his word back to him. That you speak his word back so we can train, so we can coach our hearts to say, no, I want your will, God. I want what you want, God. And also reminding him of those promises so that you can have more faith that he will accomplish them. And, and I do believe that it's proper for us to obey God in his word and, 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 and do his will in our life. But, but that's not in a form of saying, hey, I want to pay God back or, or, or give him this gift. But it's in praise and worship and faith that we obey and do his will. Because we as a church believe in prayer so much and that it's so important, we've actually provided opportunities for us to be faithful in this, this one thing here in praise and worship to him. And so I'm going to do a little infomercial, okay? Uh, we do uh, what we call the boiler room every single Sunday at 11 o'clock just down there. I just met with him right before this gathering. It's amazing. People go down there. They pray specifically for the power of God, right? So, so the reason why it's called the boiler room is because the power to a building used to be the boiler room, right? And so the power of the church is built on prayer. That's how City Light church was built was on prayer and so they pray for God's mission in our city to the nation and then to the other nations as well today they pray for Somalia and so there's an opportunity to pray Uh, the first Sunday of every single month we gather together right here in this room at 7 p.m. to pray so that's a week from the day we come in we worship and we praise God but then we petition him we say God you've promised to do your will you've promised to build your kingdom so so come build your kingdom right here in Lincoln Nebraska and in our state and in our nation and in our world please please God do what you've promised that you said you would do and then our city groups, we, we pray for one another, for God's kingdom to come and, and dwell in our life as well, not just out there, but also in here as well. Our city groups pray every single week for one another. We're a praying people because we know that God has made promises and that he will fulfill them. You see, we began this story with David asking the question, how much could he do for God? How much was enough? But David is recognizing here and trusting that, that, him doing any, that he's not doing anything. But God is doing all the work and that he's just along for the ride. Isn't that amazing? The pressure's off. The debt has been canceled. The beauty of the Christian faith is not, look at what God has done. Now let us work and pay him off. No, the the, the beauty of the Christian faith is, look at what God has done. And now we get to spend the rest of our life watching him continue to do miraculous things in and through and among us. It's wonderful. Now, City Light, does this mean that we no longer need to give our time, talent, and money toward kingdom work? By no means. I'm a pastor. I'm not going to tell you that, okay? Uh, but, but for real, though, uh, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Here's what he says. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Listen to this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see it? 
God doesn't need us to save ourselves, to give, to give him anything in return for his grace, but we can give toward the work that he's prepared before us. I don't want us to walk away and say, because God doesn't need me, therefore I'll spend the rest of my life just doing whatever I want for myself. If that is your thought, I'm not sure you understand God's grace. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer says it this way. He says, a heart touched by the gospel, we become like the gospel, overflowing with grace. We aren't in the business of trying to pay God off, which, which, which leads to the question of how much is enough to give back to God. And we're not in a place where God is asking us to change the world because it's far too large for us. What God is inviting us into is to see what he's at work doing and respond accordingly with our finances, our time, and our talents out of praise and worship and faith. So we're in the place of responding to his grace not for his grace. So if you're in the room and, and you're tired of trying to be good enough or, or spending your life paying God back, can I say something to you? Stop. Stop it. You, you can't be good enough, so stop trying to be good enough. You can't pay him back. You cannot afford that loan. I promise you that. It's a free gift to you by his grace, so take it, own it, receive it. It's yours. And if you're in the room thinking that you're disqualified from that grace, you are dead wrong. That grace is free. You don't have to clean yourself up and, or make yourself some different kind of person in order to come to Jesus. Jesus says, no, you come to me now as you are and I'll meet you. Just like his presence went with his people, his presence will be with you right now. It's a free gift. And so maybe for some of us today, we can, we can finally say this is the day that I, I, I rest and lavish in the grace of Jesus. Maybe this day will be the day where we finally feel the weight of us trying harder, trying to pay God back, just fall off our shoulders. Maybe today we'll stop worrying about achieving or getting God's approval and just enjoy the reality of his grace that's been lavished upon us. Maybe today we'll actually realize the magnitude and the brilliance and the beauty of that grace. Maybe today God will move our hearts to a place of awe and awe-inspiring our faith that we might take everything and leverage in generosity toward his kingdom work out of worship of him. See, like God has called us as a church, if he's done so, he, he's, he's Adonai Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. He has called us as a church to make disciples that are Jesus-centered and plant churches. That's what the call, our mission as City Light Church is, but we can't do that on our own. We need the presence and the promise of God to go forth. And we do that with grateful hearts that we would pursue that because he's promised to build his kingdom. Now, God has fulfilled the promise to David that he's promising right here. He, he filled that in Jesus, right? That son did come, that son did die, and that son did raise from the grave and reigns forever. But like David, we actually parallel with him in this that our king did make another promise. He promised to come back. He promised, Jesus has promised back that he would come back to redeem all of creation back to himself. And so until he does that, we have the privilege and the honor to be a part of the process of ushering in this kingdom that will redeem everything back to himself. We get to work with the king as he makes all things new. Amen? Let's pray.